0: Or Parasite from South Korean Netflix. Over a hundred different countries. All you have to do is change your location and refresh Netflix or whatever. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. In fact, when I set it up for myself, I was surprised at how easy it was. It just installs and then loads up and works. And it works on more than just PCs, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and so much more. So, if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now: expressvpn.com/ringslore, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com/ringslore. expressvpn.com/ringslore to learn more. Welcome to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast, the show that explores the background of Tolkien's amazing world from the very beginning. The forging of the rings probably sounded something like this. This is blacksmithing. Lots of heating metal pounding it into a shape. In the case of the rings, they were probably cast in some sort of dye. And then fired. With other elements included, we don't really know the process... Because it was magical, and it was something that Sauron had taught the elves to do. And at this point in the story, they had no idea that these magical rings were going to be used against them, and against all of the other free peoples of Middle-earth. And we know from the stories, three rings for the elves, seven for the dwarves, ten for mortal men. But what did that actually look like? And what was it like to be somebody who was offered one of these rings? In today's text, we're given a rough description. That's the best way to put it. So much of this book, as we've been discussing it, and as I've mentioned before, Is vague. We get these general statements, this kind of an overview look, but even in that overview, we get some insights and some specifics that sometimes people gloss over. And as we go into this, I want you thinking for yourself, not from the perspective of somebody who has watched the Lord of the Rings movies or read the books. Somebody who knows the end of the story and how dangerous these rings are. But from the perspective of somebody on the ground there at this time. Who didn't know how dangerous Sauron actually is. What is it like for them to be offered one of these rings? Especially one of the dwarves or one of the men. Hey, here's a magic item. I made it for you says a wise and kind and friendly-looking person. And maybe that's exactly what they are. Or maybe they're Sauron, and they're using these rings to turn the wills and the wants, the hopes and the fears of the people of Middle-earth against them. And isn't that exactly what happens in our own world? Today, we're digging into the three, the seven, and the nine. This section of the texts starts with a description of the three rings for the elves. And here's what it says. Now, these were the 3 that had been last made, and they possessed the greatest powers. Narya, Nenya, and Vilya they were named, the rings of fire and of water and of air, set with ruby and adamant and sapphire. And of all the elven rings Sauron most desired to possess these. For those who had them in their keeping could ward off the decays of time and postpone the weariness of the world. But Sauron could not discover them, for they were given into the hands of the wise, who concealed them and never again used them openly, while Sauron kept the ruling ring. Now there are a few little details in here that we can gain some insight into. First of all, these were... ...built around elements, fire, water, and air. We've seen elements before. Elements show up regularly. There's something similar going on here as well. Where the Silmarils ended up actually match these three rings. One in the sky, air. One under the sea, water. And another in the depths of the earth and deep in the depths of the earth there is fire, magma. We're also told very specifically what these rings do, and we see the effects of these rings in the Lord of the Rings when we go to places like Rivendell or Lothlorien. They ward off the decays of time and postpone the weariness of the world. So by the end of the Third Age, when... Characters like Elrond or Galadriel are still in Middle-earth, even though so many of their kind have become world-weary and returned to Valinor. This is the reason. This is the reason their realms are protected. Their realms are sustained in a world that continues to decay and decline around them. It's the power of these rings. And had the one ring never been lost, they wouldn't have been able to use them. Because if you recall from the last episode, as soon as Sauron puts on the one ring, they take off the three. Because they can feel that he's trying to manipulate them through the power of the rings. Now you might ask, why don't the rings corrupt them like some of the other rings do, even without the one being used? And the answer is that Celebrimbor made these by himself. Sauron, as it says here in the text, had never touched them. Yet they were also subject to the one. So we can assume here that Celebrimbor uses a recipe designed by Sauron in order to also make these, but Sauron himself doesn't actually come in contact with these rings in order to corrupt them further. They're still tied to the one, but they are not corrupted in a way similar to, for example, the ten rings for men. Now in the text, it goes on and explains some of the war that is now happening between Sauron and the elves in Eregion. Sauron can't claim power over those three rings because nobody's using them. So that backfires. So he resorts to force. He attacks Eregion, lays waste to this realm of the elves, kills Celebrimbor, and remember the doors of Moria? The ones that with the uh, elven inscription over the top that the fellowship go through? Those dwarven doors had an elven inscription because that was where the elves would come to trade with the dwarves of Moria because they used to be friends. Those doors were shut and closed, not to be open to anyone outside of Moria because it was too dangerous. Some of these elves... Including Elrond, retreat to Imladris. This is where they build the stronghold and the refuge of Rivendell, or Imladris to the elves. And this endures. And some of the other elves return to the shores, to where Gilgalad is, and Círdan, the shipwright in Linden. But the rest of Middle-earth now occupied by men and dwarves, is left to Sauron. He has consolidated his power and raised armies of dark things, orcs, trolls, whatever else he can get his hands on, much in the way that Morgoth did. And he's dominating the rest of the races. And then we learn more about What happens to these other rings? It says here, seven rings he gave to the dwarves and to men he gave nine. For men proved in this matter, as in others, the readiest to his will. And all those rings that he governed, he perverted. The more easily since he had a part in their making and they were accursed. And they betrayed in the end all those that used them. Remember, these are different from the three that went to the elves. By their design and in their inception, in their creation, they were cursed by Sauron. He put his hands on them. I would imagine, and it doesn't say here in the text, that that means some amount of his will, his energy, went into them. But not like the one. Very different. So what do we know about the Dwarven Rings, the Seven? Well, it says here... The dwarves indeed proved tough and hard to tame. They ill endured the domination of others and the thoughts of their hearts are hard to fathom, nor can they be turned to shadows. This is interesting because this first line here says they are hard to tame and they ill endure the domination of others. That's a fancy way of saying they are stubborn. And that's one of the things that we love about the dwarves the most is how stubborn they are. They will not listen to others, be dominated by others. They have their own minds and they're going to set their own minds and they're going to do what they're going to do because they're dwarves. And there's something charming about that. And that actually works to their benefit here because they aren't corrupted in exactly the same way that, say, the men are because of this. And Sauron has a hard time understanding them. The thoughts in their hearts are hard to fathom. He understands the want to dominate others and the want to create things. So maybe they don't want to dominate others, but they definitely like to create things and the gathering of wealth and and that sort of thing. But it still is a little bit odd to him. And they can't be turned to the shadows. Meaning, I would assume, they can't be turned into wraiths. They don't disappear from this world in the same way that, say, the ringwraiths do, the Nazgul. The effects of the rings are not necessarily what Sauron would have anticipated, but they still have an effect. They used their rings only for the getting of wealth, but wrath and an overmastering greed of gold were kindled in their hearts of which evil enough after came to the prophet of Sauron. So they still had an effect. They heightened the thing that they wanted the most, gold. And the wrath that comes from being kept from the gold that they wanted to acquire. We see this in a different way in The Hobbit with Thorin and the dragon sickness. It's a very similar kind of thing. And as with many of Tolkien's works, we have similar themes that repeat, which we've mentioned before. It goes on and says, It is said that the foundation of each of the seven hordes of the dwarf kings of old was a golden ring. But all those hordes long ago were plundered, and the dragons devoured them. And of the seven rings... Some were consumed in fire, and some Sauron recovered. We're not given specifics here, but we are given the assumption that each of these dwarven hordes, each of these seven locations of dwarves across Middle-earth, were founded by a ring. And those hordes, either by design of Sauron or by happy accidents led to their downfall. The amassing of all of that gold drew dragons, who were now rare to be seen and hiding in the cold and high places of the world. But much like Smog, who realized there was wealth to be gained, the dragons swooped in and took for themselves the gold that these dwarves had amassed. But the specifics here are not stated. It doesn't say in this text... Specifically, which of these hordes, what they were called, where they were located, who the Dwarven Lord was over that area, it's very vague. And we can dive into this in a future episode about what we can assume about where those are, but that's not the point of this episode today. The idea here is that the rings still had an effect. They still destroyed the users and the people of those users, in a way that was beneficial to Sauron. And so by the time of the Third Age, many dwarves have lost their homes, are roaming, and many have already lost their lives, because their people were cursed with these magic rings. Go check these out today. Search for Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Again, search Eufy Video Lock. I think you'll love it. All right, here we are in the middle of the show. This is where we get to thank our patrons, including our newest patrons, Kate L, Nick L, Michael G. Thank you so much for signing up. Welcome to the Patreon. I hope you are enjoying your ad-free episodes or your other stuff that you're going to be getting. And I have to shout out all 177. Wow, everybody, 177 of you who are currently supporting this Show and also our VIP patrons who get shoutouts every week. Let's see how fast I can get through the list. AK Music Lover, Anakin Skywalker, Austin C, Azel Razzle, Bo, Black Squirrel, Brandy D, Chewbacca, Christopher Noen is Noble, uh, Cutter Metalworks, David S, David M, Drupal, Esoteric Rage, Fulcrum, Gavin Aleph, Gemma D, Jesse P, KDL, KDS, Capenna. Larry, Nick K, Nick L, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Rivqua, Sam B, Swiggy Swoo, TJT, Tour Son of Hoor, Tyler M, Wes P, and Who Let the Juan Out. Thank you so much to all of you and everybody else. I couldn't do this without you. Also, if you'd like to leave a review, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we'll read out your uh, stuff on the future episode like we usually do. Also, you can rate the show on Spotify or whatever platform you're listening to this on. You can tell your friends and your family. All of that stuff is extremely helpful and keeps me going. And it, you know, it makes my day better. Like every time I read one of these reviews, I'm like, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. (laughs) It really does warm my heart. So thank you to all of you for your support. Let's move on with the rest of the show. So that's the Dwarven Rings, and we aren't told exactly how many are consumed by the fire of the dragons or recovered by Sauron. This is another interesting point, though. They were consumed by the fire of the dragons. Dragon's Breath is something that can destroy a magic ring. Now, of course, that's very hard to come by. (laughs) So it makes sense that the Fellowship went to Mount Doom instead of trying to find a dragon to breathe on a ring Can you imagine doing that? That would be almost impossible. But what about the men? What about mankind? Well, unfortunately, it says here in the text, men proved easier to ensnare. Those who used the nine rings became mighty in their day. Kings, sorcerers, and warriors of old. I'm going to pause there. Kings makes sense because they accrued lots of power. They rose to nobility. They used the rings in order to achieve heights of fame and domination over others. Sorcerers is interesting because the rings give them abilities that I suppose you could consider part of sorcery. And warriors make sense too. They were stronger, they were more fierce. It goes on and says they obtained glory and great wealth, yet it turned to their undoing. They had, as it seemed, unending life, yet life became unendurable to them. This is the very thing the Numenorians were looking for. And the rings granted it. And you can clearly see in the text here how that was a bad thing. Men were not designed to live forever in Middle-earth. Their spirits couldn't endure it. It was unendurable. It became a weight instead of a joyous thing. It goes on and says, They could walk, if they would, unseen by all eyes in this earth beneath the sun. And they could see things in worlds invisible to mortal men. This description is very similar to what Bilbo and Frodo experience when using the One Ring. Turning invisible when they choose to, if they would, is Tolkien's way of saying, should they decide to do so. And then being able to see things in the world invisible to mortal men. And not only does it say in world, in worlds, plural, invisible to mortal men and the exact meaning of that again is not listed here are there more than one invisible world something to ponder but too often they beheld only the phantoms and delusions of sauron this implies that sauron would use the rings to torment them to put things in front of their minds that may not actually be true, potentially to goad them on with lies, to drive them forward towards other things that they wanted or away from things they feared that didn't actually exist. It goes on, and says, And one by one, sooner or later, according to their native strength and to the good or evil of the wills in the beginning they fell under the thraldom of the ring that they bore and under the domination of the one, which was Sauron's. This is also interesting because it shows some of the resilience of the hobbits. Sooner or later, eventually they all fell to full domination. According to their native strength, their their own wills, how long it took to break their wills, and to the good or evil of the wills in the beginning. What were their intentions? Those with evil wills to conquer and make themselves great fell to domination much more easily. But those who had good wills, who even wanted to use the ring for good things, as is echoed in the Lord of the Rings by Gandalf or Galadriel, those people who would want to use that power for good eventually would succumb to it. And the wise knew this in the third age because they saw what happened to so many. And they became forever invisible, save to him that wore the ruling ring, and they entered into the realm of shadows. The Nazgul were they, the ring wraiths the enemy's most terrible servants. Darkness went with them, and they cried with the voices of death. One of the descriptions we get in The Lord of the Rings talks about how the sounds that the ringwraiths would make and their mere presence near mortals created fear, the hair rising on the backs of their necks. Their voices were the cries of death and yet they were never given death. Does it imply that they were seeking it? They were constantly asking for it and it never was given or maybe that through their domination, that is the one thing they could actually provide anyone else from that point on was death, something they never could get for themselves. And in the next few paragraphs, we're given more details about how Sauron comes to power. And all of this is happening before he directly confronts the Numenorians and ar That moment where the armies are amassed, Sauron sees the power of the Numenorians, and that they are, in fact, more powerful than the armies he's pulled together at this point, which have trounced the elves and driven them to the edges of their lands. And yet he bows his head and allows himself to be captured by the Numenorians. But before that, these are called the black years. It says, the black years began, which the elves call the days of flight. And in that time, many of the elves of Middle-earth fled to Linden and thence over the seas, never to return and many were destroyed by Sauron and his servants. But in Linden, Gilgalad still remained in power, and Sauron dared not as yet to pass the mountains of Arid Luin, nor to assail the havens. And Gilgalad was aided by the Numenorians. So we're given a picture here Sauron amasses this power, he corrupts the dwarves and the men. We aren't given a specific time frame, we don't know the beginning dates or the end dates for when these happen. But we can tell that this is happening during a time when the Numenorians are still in league, still friends with the elves because they're helping to keep Linden safe. But the elves themselves have been reduced in power to the point where they can't defend their own homelands against the armies of Sauron. So you have kind of a power structure here. The elves, of course, are wise and noble and great combatants, but they don't have the numbers to stand against the armies of Sauron. Sauron's armies are continuing to grow and build, and yet he, by the time of ar is not as powerful as the Numenorians yet. And the dwarves, during all of this, have been focusing on the amassing of wealth. And are slowly losing their kingdoms to dragons. So we can assume that this is somewhere in that middle period of the second age, while the Numenorians were still massing forces against Sauron, were still helping some of the peoples, yet in this time, many of the men are turned to evil. We're also told a little bit more about Sauron, a mask he could wear so that if he wished he might deceive the eyes of men, seeming to them wise and fair, which follows. This is the same thing he was doing to everybody else at this point. But he ruled rather by force and fear if they might avail. And those who perceived his shadow spreading over the world called him the Dark Lord and named him the enemy. And he gathered under his government, all the things of the days of Morgoth that remained on earth or beneath it. And the orcs were at his command and multiplied like flies. This passage might imply some command over Balrogs like Durin's bane, but Durin's bane doesn't seem to ever have been in association with Sauron as far as we can tell. But what other things under the earth is he commanding? Spiders? The orcs and goblins that live in the ground? It doesn't exactly say. But Then we get this other passage where we get one more insight into what it was like to be one of these men of Middle-earth who were being conquered and ruled over by Sauron. Elsewhere, Sauron reigned, and those who would be free took refuge in the fastness of wood and mountain, and ever Fear pursued them. And I'm assuming this both means men and elves are basically pushed out of the civilized areas into the wilderness in order to maintain their freedom because they fear Sauron. In the east and south, well nigh all men were under his dominion. And they grew strong in those days and built many towns and walls of stone. And they were numerous and fierce in war, and armed in iron. To them Sauron was both king and god, and they feared him exceedingly, for he surrounded his abode with fire. And again, we don't get details on that. Was Mordor ringed in flames? Is this just a reference to Mount Doom? We don't really know. But we do know that the people in the east and the south, from this point forward, were severely, severely corrupted by Sauron. And they worshipped him as both king and god. It's no wonder that these people came under the sway of Sauron again in the Third Age so easily. They were never really free of his influence. So that's the description we get about the Three, the Seven, and the Nine rings and how they influenced the middle of the Second Age, at least in the text of the Silmarillion. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Lord of the Rings lorecast. If you'd like to learn more about other fantasy worlds, check out my other podcasts, The Elder Scrolls lorecast, The Witcher lorecast, and more at robotsradio.net. If you'd like to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a note on Twitter at Robots underscore Radio or join our amazing community on the Robots Radio Discord. There are links in the show notes or just search Robots Radio Discord or find the link on RobotsRadio.net. I'll see you next time.